We are in week four of a sermon series called Thrive. And the idea of the sermon series is we want to talk about uh, just a couple of the elements uh, of what it, what it would look like, what it would take for human beings to thrive, uh, to flourish, right? And uh, part of our starting point is we're saying that we believe that God is the author of reality, right? He's the author of, uh, of math and science and philosophy and poetry and uh, engineering. He's the author of it all. He's the author of humanity. And if he's the author of humanity, then God surely has a lot to say about how humanity would best work and how human beings might thrive. And so the different topics that we've been covering over the last couple weeks are as follows. Um, One, we talked about the idea of slowing down. So slow down, uh, go long, look deep, love well, give up. And uh, so when we talked about slowing down, we talked about how God gives us all these different things. He gives us the Sabbath. He gives us prayer. He gives us meditation. He even gives us tithing. And in all of these things, what God is essentially doing is he's reminding us that he is at work. In other words, he's saying, look, slow down. I've got this. You can trust me. And not only are we reminded that he is at work, we're reminded that he's trustworthy, that we can trust in him to fight our battles for us. And of course, in terms of the Sabbath, we're reminded that we've been set free from slavery. It links it all the way back to being rescued from slavery in Egypt. Uh, We talked about the idea of going long or persevering in the Christian faith, of not giving up, and we took a look at the parable, Jesus' parable of the sower and the seeds. And in it, Jesus tells this story about how the gospel is um, shared, it goes out. Now, some people never really begin their spiritual journey because Satan comes along and, in Jesus' words, he snatches it out before it has a chance to take root in their hearts. And so some people never begin. Other people quit or uh, walk away from God because of persecution. That was a reality, obviously, in the early church. There was real persecution. You know, you might get made fun of now. Somebody might think less of you. That's still persecution. But people would walk away because of that persecution. People also quit or walked away from the faith because of the cares of the world. That's most likely um, the cause for the vast people in America, the vast number of people in America who walk away from their relationship with God. It's just the cares of the world, money, you know, soccer tournaments on you know, Sundays and kids' sports throughout the week and going to the lake and just the general cares of the world. And little by little, you kind of wander away from God. But then some, according to this parable of the sower and the seed, some people persevere, right? Some people stick it out. They remain with God to the very end, and those people thrive. And the Bible paints any number of different pictures of what that thriving as human beings can look like. You see it all throughout the Proverbs. Last week, Bob talked about this idea of giving up or forgiveness and how forgiveness has a a legal element, but it also has a relational element because sin has a legal element, but it also has a relational element. So we talked about one of the ways in which we thrive as human beings is when we're willing to forgive because God has forgiven us in Jesus and that today we're going to jump in um, to our next topic, the fourth. But before we do that, let me take a moment and let me invite us all to, to just rest a moment and to pray. Father, thank you for inviting us here. Father, I thank you for allowing us uh, to hear Scripture being read. I thank you for allowing us uh, to sing your praises um, and to listen to people as they praise you. Father, I thank you for inviting us just into a community with brothers and sisters in Christ. And Father, I pray that um, as all of those things sort of press in and weigh upon us, that our hearts might be softened today, uh, that we might not only be able to hear your word and to hear from you, uh, but that we would really even give you access um, to our hearts so that not only would our thinking be changed, but our, our feelings and our hearts would be changed as well. 
Father, we pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Many of you have heard this quote, the unexamined life is not worth living. The unexamined life is not worth living. Um, that was uttered by Socrates about 2,400 years ago. This guy got it right. He, I saw a fist pump. Anyway, yeah, so Socrates, 2,400 years ago, said the unexamined life is not worth living. Uh, some of you know about Socrates because when you were a sophomore, you read some philosophy book, you know, at your classical Christian school or something. Uh, some of you guys saw Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and got exposed to Socrates or Socrates through Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Um, Socrates uh, lived about 400 BC. He was a Greek philosopher who lived in Athens. Uh, his father was a stonemason. His mother was a midwife. Uh, he grew up around the Acropolis and in downtown Athens, and so he was constantly around all of the philosophers as they sat around and talked and debated and discussed these big issues. And as he was a child and a young, you know, young man sort of listening to those discussions, he began to enter in, and he began to learn to really think, right, to think critically about the world in which he was living. Uh, he went into uh, stone masonry following in his father's footsteps before being um, recruited into the Athenian army. He fought in several wars. And then when he got out of these wars, he became a teacher or a philosopher. He was surrounded by pupils, uh, one of which was Plato, which is one of the main ways we know about Socrates' life. Well, what he was known for was really being sort of brutal in terms of asking tough questions and looking really deeply into the heart of the matter. And so he got a, a reputation very quickly for being one of the wisest people in all of Athens. At one point, one of his pupils went to see the oracle at Delphi, and uh, the pupil asked the oracle at Delphi, who's the wisest person in the world? And the oracle quickly responded that it was Socrates. When Socrates' pupil came back and told him what the oracle had said, Socrates laughed. And he said, I'm not the wisest person in the world. He said, I have no wisdom whatsoever. I know nothing, right? I don't know anything. And so in order to prove or disprove uh, the oracle at Delphi, he went around and began talking to poets and philosophers and civic leaders and asking them questions and trying to find out which of them was actually the wisest person in the world at that point in time. And he said after uh, quite a while of, of basically meeting with all these people and asking them questions and sort of finding out who was really wise, he said, one of the things that I discovered as I talked to these philosophers and poets and government officials is that they thought they were wise. Like they thought they knew it all. But he said, in reality, they didn't know anything. And so he said, by default, I realize maybe I am the wisest man in the world <laughs> because at least I know that I know nothing, right? Well, you can imagine how that went over with the politicians and the philosophers and all the famous people of the day. They were pretty offended, pretty frustrated, especially as he was telling that story and talking to his students about it. And so um, not too long afterwards, he was arrested and charged uh, with, tri with, um, with um, accusations of corrupting the young minds of Athens. In other words, like rock and roll back in the 60s and 70s, he was corrupting the young people by asking all of these questions. Um, when he was arrested, he was convicted, and uh, they gave him three different options. They said, either you can quit teaching, or you can go into exile, or you can accept death. And he chose death, saying, the unexamined life is not worth living. The unexamined life is not worth living. In other words, life's not worth living unless we're willing to really look deep and to go deep, right? So not only did Socrates say that, but also the social scientists of today would essentially say some of the same things, maybe, maybe not so extremely. Uh, there's an article that I read just recently called All Successful Leaders Need This Quality 
self-awareness. It's by a man named Victor Lippmann. He's this leadership management guru from Harvard. He wrote this article in Forbes magazine. I'm going to read a little section of it very quickly, but again, it's on, it's on the importance of self-awareness, particularly in leaders. Here's what he says. He said, it's always pleasant if uncommon, to find out something you've long intuitively believed has been, unbeknownst to you, validated by research. In other words, it's nice when you have this intuitive assumption and then research backed it up. This was the case when I recently came across a study emphasizing the importance of self-awareness as a critical trait for successful leaders. So in order to be a successful leader, self-awareness is very important. The study was conducted in 2010 by Green Peak Partners and Cornell School of Industrial and Labor Relations. The study examined 72 executives at public and private companies with revenues ranging from $50 million to $5 billion, so high-powered leaders. The research examined a number of executive interpersonal traits, but the finding that most resonated with me was this one, and I quote from the study, "'Leadership searches give short shrift to self-awareness.'" which should actually be a top criterion. Interestingly, listen to this quote. Here's the meat of it right here. Interestingly, a high self-awareness score was the strongest predictor of overall success. Let me read it one more time. Interestingly, a high self-awareness score was the strongest predictor of overall success of all these you know, CEOs and big businessmen. He goes on to say, this is not altogether surprising as executives who are aware of their weaknesses are often better able to hire subordinates who perform well in categories which the leader lacks acumen. In other words, these guys are self-aware enough to surround them people, them, themselves with people who are good at things they're not good at. They're not, they're not um, intimidated by that. These leaders are also more able to entertain the idea that someone on their team may have an idea that is even better than their own. In other words, again, they're not intimidated by the fact that somebody on their team might know more than them or have a better idea than them on, on some issue they're discussing. In other words, this idea of self-awareness is critical, right? That's what Socrates was saying 2,400 years ago. It's what Victor Lippmann is saying today based upon this research, right, that it's so important for us to thrive as human beings that we have the ability to look deep, right? to really look into our hearts and see what we believe and to see what motivates us, to see what makes us tick. And when we refuse to do that, right, if we thrive when we do it, then what happens when we don't? You can just guess how destructive it is when we don't have the ability to look deeply within ourselves. The question is, what does the Bible have to say about all of this? Well, there's a few different things we're going to focus on today. I cannot say it all, so I'm only going to say three things. First of all, one of the things the Bible teaches us is that we must look deep because we are experts in self-deception. Okay, let me read that one more time. Let's say it one more time. We must look deep because we are experts in self-deception. Our capacity to deceive ourselves is remarkable. It's much, much more prevalent and stronger than we realize. So I'm going to read Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17 says this. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. God is basically saying, here's the reality of your heart. You're trusting in flesh. You're trusting in human beings, right? Your heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert in a salt land where no one lives. In other words, when you don't look deeply and see that you need to depend upon God for your salvation as your strong tower, then living life is like living in the parched places of the desert. It's the opposite of thriving. It's like living in a salt land where no one lives. Verse 7, 
but blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in Him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It's thriving. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. It bears fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. Now, I could spend time sort of pulling out, you know, from parables that Jesus tells and from Proverbs and Old Testament stories. I could, I could pull all these things out to show and to prove the point that the Bible argues that we, again, have this amazing capacity for self-deception. But I'm just, for a minute, I'm going to just ask that you take my word for it. I'm going to ask that you take my word for it, that when Jesus tells all those parables and stories, that he's trying to get down to people's hearts because they don't really know their own hearts. They're deceiving themselves about who they are and about who God is, right? Again, the Bible affirms this uh, this amazing capacity for self-deception, but again, so does social science, so does research. Uh, This is actually from a Harvard Business Review article by a guy named Robert Rubin, who's the former Secretary of the Treasury, Harvard, Yale grad, MBA. Uh, In his article, it's called, We're Not Very Self-Aware, and then it goes on to say, especially at work. But listen really quickly to, again, this idea and this concept, this truth and principle of uh, of self-deception or the absence of self-awareness. He he says this, self-awareness is understanding who we are and how we are similar to or different from others. So it's distinguishing who we are, but even who we are in opposition to others. One key facet is self-knowledge, how we see our various personality traits, values, attitudes, and behaviors. But another aspect is being aware of how consistent or inconsistent our self-view is compared to an external appraisal. In other words, um, does what I think about myself and see about myself, does it match up with the way that other people see me and the way they think about me? Does it match up? He says, our self-view is compared to external appraisal, how other people see us, um, or against objective data. The latter is essential for transforming self-knowledge beyond mere personal introspection into accurate self-awareness. In other words, it's important for us to look deep. It's important for us to have help as we do it. He goes on to say, he says, in the talent development practice, companies spend millions of dollars and countless hours every year on self-reported assessments that only target self-knowledge, like the Myers-Briggs and the DISC, all of which are very dear to my heart. I love all that stuff. It's so fun. But he goes on to say, the core problem is that we're notoriously poor judges of our own capabilities. A 2014 study of 22 meta-analyses containing over 357,000 people found an average correlation of 0.29 between self-evaluations and objective assessments. A correlation of 1.0 would indicate total accuracy. In other words, we view ourselves with accuracy about 33% of the time, is what this study says, right? So my self-reported profile may suggest that I see myself as a persuasive speaker, but tell that to the audience who just fell asleep. Like it? One of the things that happens in um, church planting world and ministry world is you have these, um, you know, trainings and assessments. And uh, I remember going through one of these in Atlanta probably 10 or 11 years ago, and they were talking about what makes a successful church planter. 
And one of the things that they talked about is how every single pastor they interview thinks he's a good preacher, right? And you should laugh at that, actually, because we all know you can be a great guy and love Jesus and not be a particularly good preacher, and I'm probably one of those people. Anyway, all right, so the question is, why is this important, right? Why is it important for us to recognize that we have this amazing capacity for self-deception? Part of the reason it's important is because this culture that we live in, and I would say Satan uses this, to tell us over and over and over again to follow your heart, follow your heart, be true to yourself, follow your heart. And yet scripture and science both tell us how dangerous that is, especially when we don't really know what's going on in our hearts. We don't really know what's driving us. We're deceiving ourselves. I'm leading a little book study right now on Thursdays at 1130 over in Doug's Deli, kind of a plug, um, on the seven desires written by uh, the lasers. And uh, in it, one of the things that they talk about is they talk about how our wounds end up really driving how we live our lives and how we cope with reality. And of course, most of what they're talking about is in these formative ages of our, our lives in relationship with parents and brothers and sisters and uh, you know, key adults, especially when we're young, we're wounded, we're hurt in various ways. And so we employ coping mechanisms when we're very young, before we're ever even conscious of it, really, and that those things then sort of become part of the fabric of our hearts and part of the fabric of how we see the world. And so what happens is, is that some people are fearful, and so they end up being people pleasers, right? And so they're people pleasers so they can try to keep everybody happy so that, so that no one is displeased with them. But if you ask a people pleaser what's driving you, they would just say, I just love people. I just really like people. I'm just really curious. And that may be true to an extent, but as a people pleaser, I can tell you that a lot of what was going on in my heart, especially during the early days of my people pleasing, was just I couldn't handle somebody not liking me. Like it, it would undo me. And so as a result, I just had to try to keep everyone happy, but I didn't even know that about myself, right? I was deceived. I was deceiving myself about my real motivations. Some people respond to that fear of rejection um, in the totally opposite way, right? Instead of becoming people pleasers and trying to keep everybody happy, there's a whole other group of people that are so fearful of rejection that what they do is they just sort of isolate themselves and they become quiet. And uh, I'm not saying there aren't real introverts in the world, but what I am saying is that I do think there are times where people have become introverted because they're so fearful of rejection. Again, they would say, I'm just quiet. I would have said, I just like people, but the reality is, is that we're deceiving ourselves. There's something deeper down that's driving the way that we live life, that's driving the way that we interact with others. And so if it's true that we have this amazing capacity for self-deception, I'm just going to ask that you take my word for it, that it is so true that we really do have this amazing capacity for self-deception, then think about how that is going to shape and color and pollute even the love of spouse, right? How, how is that going to pollute the love of spouse? How is it going to pollute your friendships and raising children and the way that you view work and study, right? Again, if it's true that we're deceiving ourselves in all of these ways and there are all these things that are driving us down deep inside, then everything is tainted either a little bit or a lot by self-protection and self-centeredness, right? It just, it just shapes everything. And the good news is, is that God loves you anyway. The good news is that God gives you friends who enable you to see through that. He gives you, if you're fortunate, a good spouse 
with whom you're able to stand in front of vulnerable or naked and unashamed, right? And rather than seeing them as an enemy, you can see them as an advocate, right? Somebody who wants to help you look deep that you might thrive, right? We're masters of self-deception. That's one thing the Bible is very clear about. The second thing that we see in Scripture about this whole idea of looking deep and self-awareness is that we must look deep because we are driven by assumptions and beliefs that we're completely unaware of. And so we're masters of self-deception, right? But what's interesting is those things we're deceiving ourselves about, those are the very things that drive us in relationship. They drive us in work. They drive us in sports. Um, I'm going to quote a book really quickly that I'm embarrassed to quote because it's got the worst title in the history of humanity, but it's called Getting the Love You Want. Here's a picture of it. Anyway, Getting the Love You Want. Right? It sounds like a Saturday Night Live joke book. Anyway, Getting the Love You Want by a guy named Harville Hendricks. Uh, but he is a, a counselor who his particular school of counseling is called the Imago School of Counseling. And it's not Christian. It's not Imago Dei. It's just Imago, sort of the image of humanity. And one of his primary uh, premises in the book is that when we marry we choose a spouse or we're attracted to people or drawn to people that have both the, uh, the good pieces of our parents, but also the broken pieces of our parents. And then part of what he says is, is that through those relationships, he said, we usually choose spouses who manifest the broken parts of our relationship with our parents. And what he basically argues is that when you marry someone like one of your parents with all of their brokennesses, what you're really functionally trying to do in that marriage relationship is unconsciously or subconsciously trying to heal the relationship with your parent via the spouse. Does that make sense? It's pretty interesting stuff. I think Psychology 101 would teach us that we frequently marry someone like one of our spouses, even when that, that parent, was, I'm sorry, like one of our parents, even when that parent was abusive, right? Even when that parent was very unhealthy. We see it all the time working out, that people choose someone like one of their parents, even when that relationship was a bad, unhealthy relationship, right? What's interesting is the added piece that Hendricks talks about here is that what if what you're really trying to do subconsciously is you're really trying to heal that relationship with your parents via that spouse, that you're, you're drawn to that spouse precisely because they have the same brokenness your parents did. If that's true, it's no wonder why so many marriages are so difficult and so hard because that unseen assumption is driving the way that we live our lives. It's driving the way that we have these relationships. All right, here's what the Bible has to say. Just a quick story, and again, there's a zillion that I could tell. We're going to talk about the story of the rich young ruler and see how he was driven by assumptions and beliefs. Looking at Mark chapter 10. As he was setting out on a journey, that is Jesus, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good no one is good except God alone. Okay, notice the irony there. Good teacher, no one is good but God alone. Jesus didn't say, I'm not good, right? You know the commandments, Jesus says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not fear, bear false witness, do not defraud, uh, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. All right, so just let me stop for a second here. Good teacher, Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good, right? That's how Jesus responds. The man responds, me too, right? I've kept all these since I was a boy too. So you, me, and God, we're all good, right? That's, what, that's essentially what he's saying. But he's unaware that that's what's driving. He doesn't know that's the, that's the assumption he's making, is that my goodness 
can somehow be on an equal uh, or level playing field with the goodness of God, right? That's a, that's a pretty massive assumption that's driving him. Verse 21, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving. Right? It's a great story about these hidden assumptions and beliefs that were driving this rich young ruler. Number one, his assumption was that his, was, number one, it was his, assumption was that his, was that his goodness was somehow on parallel with God's, or it was good enough to be approved also by God's. Secondly, the rich young ruler probably wasn't aware that he was really trying to earn salvation. Good teacher, what must I do, right? Probably wasn't aware of that. And the rich young ruler definitely wasn't aware up until that point that he loved money more than God, or that he trusted in money more than he trusted in God, or he found his security in wealth more than in God. His whole life had been driven by assumptions that he didn't even know that he had, and Jesus who loved him, looked at him and loved him, by the way, loved him enough to show him the reality of those assumptions and the depth of his heart, right? Now, if you think we're any different than that rich young ruler, you are deceiving yourself, right? Point one, listen to what Larry Crabb, a Christian counselor, has to say about the assumptions that we bring to the table in regard to who God is and who we are. We're not sure that God is good enough to be fully trusted, let me just let that sink in. Because again, if you're being honest, you have to admit this is true. We are not sure that God is good enough to be fully trusted. Trusting a God who tells us he loves us, but then fails to protect us from the hard circumstances of life doesn't come easily, right? And it, it doesn't, right? There's cancer in the world. Our parents got divorced. The people that were supposed to protect us didn't protect us, right? How it's not, it's not too difficult to fail in trusting God, right, when he says that he loves us, and yet all these hard things happen. That's the terror we all feel, he goes on to say. Is God really good, right? Or, you know, does he have the same perspective on goodness that I have? Because it seems like it's different. If God isn't good, we are entirely alone, because certainly no one else is perfectly good. If God isn't good, then there's no community capable of providing what we need, we are alone. That fundamental terror, and it is terror, lies beneath all our relational problems and psychological symptoms. He goes on to say, the root of all sin is a, of sin is a suspicion that God is not good, right? That God is not good, that he can't be trusted, right? That he doesn't really love me, that he's not for me. You know, think about the story of the prodigal son. I refer to it all the time because I love it and I think it's absolutely great. But you, you see in the story there's a father who's wealthy and he's powerful and he has these two sons. One is a younger son, one is an older son. Each son knows that the father exists. They know that the father has all the cards, right? He's got all the power and yet they each respond to him differently. The younger son wants the father's possessions and then wants to get away from him as quickly as possible. Why would that be? Right? Why would it be that the younger son's like, give me the stuff, I'm out, right? Clearly, I don't want a relationship with you. I'm, I'm out, right? I just want your stuff. The older son also wants the father's possessions, but tries a different tactic. He tries to bribe and to appease the father. Who do we try to bribe? Who do we try to appease? We try to appease people we're 
scared of, right? Neither wants a relationship with the Father. Both are driven by the assumption or assumptions that the Father isn't good, that He can't be trusted, and maybe that He's not for them, that He doesn't love them, right? I would argue that each of us has built our worlds, right? Our relational worlds, our work worlds, our athletic worlds around these sinful assumptions that we are terrified that God's not good, that He can't be trusted. We know God exists, so we try to bribe Him with good behavior, but we don't really trust that He's for us, so we live in fear, right, that we haven't done enough, right? Have I done enough to get into heaven, right? Have I been good enough that you like me, God? Will you accept me? Or we live in fear, believing that we've done too much, right, that surely He can't uh, or won't still love us because of all the bad stuff we've done, Others of us know that God exists, but we don't believe He's good, so we try to avoid Him altogether. We want what He's got, so like a pickpocket or a street child, we take what we can get, but we stay as far away from Him as possible. We get away as quickly as we can. Later on in life, we may raise our fist at God because we think He's a bully in the sky just waiting to crush us, but into that psychology, right, into those assumptions that drive us, and into our narratives of who we are and who God is, Jesus gives us the story of, of the prodigal father, right? Who rushes to the son, who has, you know, wasted all the money and lived this crazy life and avoided his father and only comes back because he's got no other option, right? The, the father could have been angry. The father could have scolded him. Right, but Jesus, into that psychology, paints a picture of a father who silences his son as his son tries to make an argument of why the father should receive him back. And he just says, bring the robe and put it on my son and bring shoes and put them on his feet and bring a ring and put it on his finger and kill the fattened calf because I'm just thrilled that my son wants to be back here with me, right? Like into that narrative of, is, is God good? Can he be trusted? God says, this is this is the father, right? And not only that, but then the older brother, right, who also didn't really want to have a relationship with God at all, and we're, just for what it's worth, many of us in this room are older brothers. The older brothers tried to bribe the father by good behavior and sort of by appeasing him in all these ways, and yet when the older brother doesn't come into the party, the father could have been equally as angry, could have been equally as vindictive, but instead the father goes out and in gentleness, it says that he compels the older son to come into the party, Right? come in. And so either in that story, either the father is weak and spineless and so needy that he just sort of lets his sons get away with whatever they want, or the father is so strong and so full of weight in and of himself that he can handle the sin and the assault and the affront of all of that and can reach out with mercy and grace to his two boys and say, come in, right? We're driven by these assumptions. They, they dictate everything that we do. Ultimately, third point, the gospel gives us the courage and the humility to truly look deep, right? The gospel, this idea that we're safe, this idea that we're loved, the gospel truly gives us the courage and the humility to climb up on the autopsy table and look at our own cancer and brokenness and sin and the ways in which we truly you know, believe and think about God, 
The, the gospel gives us that ability to look deep. Listen to what Tim Keller has to say about gospel repentance versus religious repentance. And Keller, whenever he talks about religion, he basically says religion is, is essentially this idea that we can earn God's affection and favor rather than accepting his grace. He says this, and you can put that slide of safety and love up there if you want to, but he says this, religious repentance is bitter all the way down. In other words, repentance that is driven by trying to appease God, it's always bitter, right? He goes on to say this, in religion, our only hope is to live a life good enough to require God to bless us. That's our only hope. Every instance of sin and repentance is therefore traumatic, unnatural, and horribly threatening. It's so scary if we don't have the gospel. Only under great duress do religious individuals admit that they've sinned because their only hope is in their moral goodness. The very thing that they're building their lives and relationships upon is moral goodness, and in being repentant, that's being threatened. It's so scary. In the gospel, the knowledge of our acceptance in Christ makes it easier to admit that we're flawed because we know we won't be cast off if we confess the true depths of our sinfulness. Our hope is in Christ's righteousness, not our own, right? Our ability to stand before God, to lay on the autopsy table, is not found in the, in the fact that we've been good enough or not too bad. It has nothing to do with our morality. It has everything to do with Christ's perfect life on our behalf. So it is not as traumatic to admit our weaknesses and lapses. Whereas in religion, we repent less and less often, right? We repent less and less often the more religious we are, the more we feel accepted and loved in the gospel, the more and more often we will be repenting. Although there is some bitterness in any repentance, in the gospel there's ultimately a sweetness. This creates a radical new dynamic for personal growth. The more we see our own flaws and sins, the more precious, electrifying, and amazing God's grace appears to us, right? Because He's safe, right? Because we are loved, On the other hand, the more aware we are of God's grace and our acceptance in Christ, the more able we are to drop our denials and self-defenses and admit the true dimensions of our sins. Great passage. You can find it online. It's um, on uh, gospel repentance by Tim Keller. So good. Let me just recap really quickly and say this. Like, we're masters in self-deception. We're driven by those assumptions that we're completely unaware of. And ultimately, it's only the gospel that gives us the safety and the security of knowing that we're loved. To be honest about our brokenness and our sin, it sets us free to look deep into our hearts and to see what really is going on in there. Let me just tell you this really quickly. You cannot do this alone, right? This is not a solo venture. It just isn't because of your capacity for self-deception. God gives you his word, right? Part of what the Bible does, it's a light unto our path, right? The Word of God tells you who God is and who you are, and you're forced with whether or not to believe that or accept it. You can't do it alone. Not only that, but God gives you the Holy Spirit. Right? Part of what the Holy Spirit does in this temple that is our bodies is He slowly, gently, kindly, winsomely, and sometimes jarringly reveals to us the depth and the breadth of our sinfulness and brokenness but doesn't just leave us there, then the Holy Spirit gives us the willingness to turn to God and to seek help and the energy to overcome those sins and those sin patterns that are within us. We can't do it alone. 
not only does God give us scripture, not only does he give us the Holy Spirit, but he gives us fellow believers, right? I mean, hopefully you're in a context where you're surrounded by other Christians who you can trust, right? And with whom you can be naked and unashamed. It might be, um, you know, friends at Barry or Shorter, right? It might be friends at work. Um, it may be a spouse. Um, it should be, honestly, your spouse. Your spouse should be the person with whom you are able to be naked and unashamed. You should be able to see your spouse, again, not as an enemy, right, but as an advocate, right? Someone who longs for you to, th- to thrive, who longs for you to be fully human. And again, the pathway to being fully human and to thriving is a willingness and an ability to look deep. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for an invitation, um, a call, a little push to look deep into our um, hearts, to look deep at our reality. Father, I pray that um, your word and your people and your spirit would be stronger than our strength of self-deception. I pray that your word, um, your spirit, and your people would would win out um, as we seek to look deep in our hearts. Father, I pray that you would um, give us your spirit to allow us to be driven not by our old sinful assumptions and beliefs, but I pray that you would give us your spirit to enable um, us um, to believe that you love us, right? That you're a good father that longs to have your boys come home. Father, I pray ultimately that this gospel, um, that we're safe and loved by you, would give us, would give the people in this room this morning the courage and the humility um, to really look deep within their hearts and to see what they really believe about you and what they really believe about themselves, Father. I pray that you would do this um, for your honor and for your glory, but I pray that you would do it um, for husbands and wives and parents and friends, Father, that we might thrive um, in the sense that we might fully be the human beings that you created us to be. Father, please enable us uh, to trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.